Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. General MacArthur's biographers often note that he was regarded with admiration by both John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. Although the differences between Kennedy and Nixon often attract the most attention, they were also similar in ways that helped draw them to General MacArthur. Both men were veterans of World War II in the Pacific, and both were incredibly ambitious. By the 1950s and early 1960s, MacArthur's reputation and status as an elder statesman appealed to both men. During that time, they sought out the general for advice and to burnish their own credentials by appearing linked to the general. Although a staunch Republican, MacArthur appears to have had a more personal connection with Kennedy. The MacArthur-Kennedy relationship may also be more interesting to MacArthur biographers because Kennedy was actually president during MacArthur's lifetime. Nixon, however, while often more marginalized in MacArthur biographies, had a long history of being publicly pro-MacArthur. He described MacArthur as a hero, a presence, an event. This admiration lasted throughout Nixon's life. In his 1982 study of 20th century leaders who changed the world, MacArthur was the only American featured, in a century that many had dubbed the American century. A believer in the great man theory of history, Nixon credited MacArthur with being the type of figure who changed the world through the force of his own willpower and vision. But where did this admiration start? When Nixon was born in Yorba Linda, California in 1913, MacArthur was already a soldier in his 30s. As a young man, Nixon would have been aware of General MacArthur, especially the general's involvement in the controversial bonus march in the 1930s. A graduate of Whittier College and Duke University School of Law, Nixon began practicing law right around the time MacArthur retired from the U.S. Army and was serving as a military advisor in the Philippines. In January 1942, Nixon moved to Washington, D.C. to work in the Office of Price Administration. As a government worker and a birthright Quaker, Nixon was exempt from military service. Four months after taking the job in Washington, D.C., however, he joined the Naval Reserve and shortly thereafter was placed on active duty. He saw service in the Pacific during the war, and when it ended, he was a lieutenant commander working in Baltimore, Maryland, to terminate wartime contracts. In 1946, he was relieved of active duty and resigned his commission. He and his wife, Pat Nixon, then moved back to California. As MacArthur led the occupation of Japan, Nixon's political rise began. In 1946, he was elected to the House of Representatives. In 1950, he was elected to the Senate. Once there, he quickly developed a strong reputation for taking a hard stance against communism, although he avoided close association with Senator Joseph McCarthy. In 1951, when President Truman fired General MacArthur, a then-Senator Nixon was one of MacArthur's most vocal supporters in Congress. Upon hearing of the dismissal, 
Nixon told the press, "The happiest group in the country will be the communists and their stooges. The president has given them what they have wanted: General MacArthur's scalp." Going a step further, Nixon introduced a resolution in the Senate calling for MacArthur's immediate reinstatement. Then he took to the floor to respond to a speech by Senator Robert Kerr of Oklahoma in defense of the president's action. In the first 72 hours after the general's dismissal, Nixon received more than 5,000 telegrams, 10,000 letters, running almost 100 to one in support of General MacArthur and in opposition to the president. He had never achieved such a nationwide response before. As MacArthur biographer William Manchester points out, Nixon was one of the shrewdest exploiters of the general's firing. While there is little doubt that Nixon preferred MacArthur to Truman, his public defense of the general and his strong stand on communism gave him national recognition and increased political clout. On April 19, 1951, Nixon was present for General MacArthur's farewell address to a joint session of Congress. Nixon found the general's speech moving, and in the months that followed, he continued to be a vocal advocate for the general in Congress. In May 1951, MacArthur was scheduled to testify before the Senate Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committees. The MacArthur hearings were to take place in a closed session. Nixon publicly argued against this. Like most Republicans, Nixon believed that the hearing should be televised for a number of reasons. Number one, the power of MacArthur's rhetorical skills could best be exploited if the American people could witness the general's own defense. Number two, Nixon warned of a conspiracy to destroy MacArthur. As he explained to the press, the American people should know that as the hearings begin into our Far Eastern policy, a whole staff of Pentagon and State Department officials have been ordered to comb the record of General MacArthur for the purpose, if possible, of destroying his past reputation. The tactic used is to disclose that portion of General MacArthur's record which would damage his reputation, and to withhold that portion which would be in his favor. As Nixon went on to argue, an open hearing would encourage a more transparent Truman administration. Number three, ironically, given his later position on such a matter in the White House, Nixon argued against a closed session and the censorship that would follow by pointing out. The new test for classifying documents now seems to be not whether the publication of a document would affect the security of the nation, but whether it would affect the political security of the administration. Nixon and his fellow Republicans ultimately lost the battle for an open hearing, but again, even in defeat, the issue had drawn national attention. MacArthur's popularity was at a high point, and Nixon was looking more and more like a politician with a long future in Washington. At the end of August 1951, the media quickly shifted from the MacArthur hearings to the upcoming Treaty of San Francisco. The treaty was to be signed in September 1951 and would officially end the war with Japan. Many across America believed that General MacArthur, who had worked so diligently on the revitalization and reformation of Japan, should be permitted to take part in the signing of the official peace treaty. President Truman indicated that he had no intention of including MacArthur in the U.S. delegation. Nixon was besieged by requests from his constituents and from the public to ask the president to include MacArthur. Nixon was not the only politician receiving these requests. But Truman remained unmoved. 
Nixon wrote a constituent in late August 1951 that he personally believed that MacArthur had done more than any other American to make the treaty possible, and that he was disappointed that Truman could not be persuaded to include the general in the proceedings. Always drawn to the White House, in 1952, MacArthur allowed himself to be considered a candidate for president. He never officially declared his candidacy. Instead, he attended the Republican National Convention amid a lot of media buzz. Hoping to become the nominee through a brokered convention, if votes were split between Dwight D. Eisenhower and Robert A. Taft, MacArthur's hopes were dashed when Eisenhower was easily nominated on the second ballot. Eisenhower then selected Richard Nixon as his running mate to add California and the youth factor to the Republican ticket. At this point, MacArthur's presidential ambitions were over. At the age of 72, he had missed his last window to be nominated. Instead, he publicly supported the Eisenhower-Nixon ticket that went on to win the White House. Relations between Eisenhower and MacArthur during the president's two terms were cordial but not close. MacArthur was an occasional visitor at the White House and would issue public statements backing some of the president's military decisions, but for the most part their contact was minimal. Vice President Nixon, however, made a point of meeting with MacArthur on a number of occasions. On one such occasion, Nixon accepted an offer to visit MacArthur's penthouse at the Waldorf. He stopped first for a visit with President Herbert Hoover, who also lived in the Waldorf. Nixon then made his way to MacArthur's apartments. Once there, he was struck by the contrast between the apartments. He later explained, Hoover's suite was impressive in its simple, uncluttered dignity. MacArthur's, while the same size, was spectacular. The memorabilia gave me the feeling that he, rather than Hoover, had served in the highest position America could offer. Later criticized for his own desire to make the White House more regal, it was clear that Nixon was impressed with MacArthur's apartment, furnished as it was with 49 tons of furniture, memorabilia, and oriental art. It also featured a 47-foot-long drawing room with views of New York City. Nixon would make more trips to the Waldorf over the next years, but was careful to never discuss these visits with Eisenhower, as he had the distinct impression that any mention of MacArthur would be unwelcome. With Eisenhower's second term coming to an end in 1961, Nixon decided to run for president. The summer before the election, Nixon was given the duty of informing MacArthur that he was to be awarded the highest honor the Japanese government could give to a non-citizen, the Grand Cordon of the Order of the Rising Sun with Polonia Flowers. The award was to recognize the general's leadership in the post-war reconstruction of Japan and his efforts to promote friendly relations between the United States and Japan. MacArthur replied to Nixon's message. You have sent me a magnificent message. I have given it to the press to show my complete support of your candidacy for the presidency. Your chances were never better. Ironically, around the same time, MacArthur also released a public statement in praise of John F. Kennedy, Nixon's adversary in the coming election. MacArthur publicly disavowed comments that had been attributed to him that were critical of Kennedy's conduct as skipper of PT-41 during World War II, and then released a statement publicly praising Kennedy's wartime service. Both men used these statements in their campaigns. 
In the end, in an incredibly tight election, Kennedy defeated Nixon. Discouraged, when his term as vice president expired in January 1961, Nixon returned to California. There, he was encouraged to run for governor of the state. Eisenhower was among the party leaders who pushed Nixon to run for governor of California in 1962 and then run for president again in 1964. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover also encouraged Nixon to run for governor as a way to build up a new political base. Former President Herbert Hoover disagreed, as did General MacArthur. In his memoirs, Nixon wrote. MacArthur put it in his characteristically oracular way: "California is a great state, but it is too parochial. You should be in Washington, not Sacramento." MacArthur's reasoning was that someone running for president needed a public forum to address national and international issues. In his mind, Nixon had already proven his leadership in World War II, in Congress, and as a vice president. He didn't need to be governor to burnish those credentials. What he needed was a platform. Nixon did not take this advice and ran for governor in 1962. He lost to the incumbent Pat Brown. The election had been bitter, and the press portrayed the result as an obituary for Nixon's political career. Nixon himself, in conceding the race, also seemed to indicate that he was abandoning politics. For a while, he did step back. In April 1964, General MacArthur died at Walter Reed Army Hospital. Four years later, Nixon ran for president a second time. This time, he won. He would win re-election in 1972, but served only part of his term before resigning in 1974 under the very real threat of impeachment in the wake of the Watergate scandal. Even as an ex-president, however, Nixon continued to be interested in MacArthur's legacy and on MacArthur's views on Asian geopolitics. In 1994, in his book Beyond Peace, Nixon devoted a chapter to Asia and the New American Century. He wrote of MacArthur's trip through Asia with his parents in 1906. Nixon noted that the trip made a lasting impression on a young MacArthur. And gave him a firm belief that the future and existence of America was deeply intertwined with Asia. Nixon agreed with this conclusion, writing, "Today, almost a century after he first visited Japan, China, Singapore, and five other Asian nations, MacArthur would be amazed at how slow his fellow Americans have been to grasp that the United States is destined to be a major Asian Pacific power." Not only in war, where MacArthur himself led so magnificently, but in peace. Some have said that if the 20th century was the American century, the 21st can be a second American century. But only if we understand that we must be as intimately involved politically, economically, diplomatically, and culturally in the Asia-Pacific region as we have been in Europe. In the end, while his relationship with MacArthur was never deeply personal or close, Nixon was one of the few politicians to articulate MacArthur's vision of the importance of the Asia-Pacific region. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams@norfolk.gov. At